September 11th, 2001. On the East Coast, it was an exceptionally beautiful morning. But it was a day that changed everything. The Defense Intelligence Agency dedicates this episode of DIA Connections to those lost on 9-11. This is DIA Connections. We must organize to support 24-7 operations, and we must do two things right now. We must identify the next act of terrorism. We must develop targets for military prosecution. My job and the, the unit that I was attached to was largely there on a capture-kill mission, and that was the first time I'd ever received orders that came directly from President Bush. I heard the president on Air Force One give the instructions to the vice president and the secretary of defense saying, we're at war. And when I find out who did this, they're not going to like me. And it won't be any slap on the wrist crap. We're going to kick their ass. Powerful and emotional thoughts from our guests as we reflect on a tragic day in American history, September 11th, 2001. So glad you found your way back for the first show of our second season of DIA Connections. On this episode, we're going to revisit that day, 20 years ago, when our nation was attacked and tested. You'll hear from two former DIA teammates speaking about the days and weeks that followed 9-11. The first began to initiate plans to seek out those responsible for the attacks the instant he saw on TV what happened in New York. The second went to Afghanistan, putting himself in harm's way to gather intelligence. You'll also hear how, of all things, baseball played a role in helping to heal a wounded nation. But up first is someone who didn't work for DIA, but did answer to the same boss as we do, the Commander-in-Chief. And he was accustomed to answering a lot of questions. Since you speak for the president, we have no access to him. Can you categorically deny that the United States... From January 2001 to July 2003, Ari Fleischer served as the White House press secretary for President George W. Bush. Uh, Helen, as I've told you many times, the position of the United States would be to lift the sanctions. He was in with the president practically every single day. And he was with him at an elementary school in Florida on the morning of September 11th. He was gracious enough to field a few questions from us and walk us through that difficult time. Ari, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be with you, thanks for having me. Everybody tell me what this part of the word says. Run. Run. Yes, run. Ari, so many people are familiar with the chilling video of the school children reading for the president when he's told the second plane hit the World Trade Center and America is under attack. How and when did you find out about the second plane that struck the towers? I got a second page. I was about 10 feet over the president's left shoulder, leaning against the wall, and it said a second plane hit the second tower. And instantly I knew it had to be terrorism. Today we've had a national tragedy. Uh, Two airplanes have crashed 
into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. The president made remarks to the press about what was known at that time, but I want to ask you about what happened after that, specifically about being on Air Force One as you attempted to make your way back to Washington. Shortly after we boarded, the president was told there are still six more unidentified aircraft in the sky that haven't followed the order to land. At that point, all aircraft in the United States have been ordered to land immediately, wherever they were flying, just land. We got in the sky and started to return to Washington, D.C., but that didn't last long. Uh, the president wanted to get back to Washington, but the Secret Service immediately concluded the last thing you want to do is land Air Force One at Andrews Air Force Base, a known location, a known target, in case there are any more hijacked aircraft in the sky that would, in essence, conduct a kamikaze raid and land on Air Force One when it's parked on, on the tarmac. Right. Yeah, well, the thought of that 20 years later is still awful. Now, we know you made stops for security purposes, and then it was back up in the air to try and get to D.C. What was it like being in the sky at that point? They preferred us to wait to fly in a random zigzag pattern in the sky all the way at 45,000 feet for a 747. And what I later learned was that it was actually part of the military training. The military during the Cold War used to train for something that was called a decapitation attack, which was in the event that the Soviet Union or China launched such a vast number of missiles at the United States in an effort to decapitate the United States government. Our military prepared for how to defend against that. And so on that day, Air Force One started to implement some of its decapitation procedures and it started to fly at a random zigzag pattern in the sky where the only person in the world who knew where Air Force One was going was its pilot. Ari, is there anything that you can share with us about what the president might have said as you were traveling back to Washington? I heard the president on Air Force One give the instructions to the vice president and the secretary of defense saying, we're at war. And when I find out who did this, they're not going to like me. And it won't be any slap on the wrist crap. We're going to kick their ass. These are the things the president said that day privately aboard Air Force One. But to hear the commander in chief say we're at war, it just sent a chill down my spine. Yeah, I can only imagine. Now, at that point, the city you grew up in, New York, was attacked. Washington, D.C. was attacked. Your country is for all intents and purposes at war. How were you able to emotionally even do what you needed to do? Well, the amazing thing about September 11th was how unemotional it was for the president and all the team that was around him, myself included. You, you couldn't be like a normal American. You couldn't be emotional. You had a job to do. In my case, my job was to listen to everything the president was doing and saying and to brief the press about it. And emotion just cannot figure into that. And... When we landed at Andrews Air Force Base at the end of the day and then boarded Marine One, when we finally got the all clear, we flew directly over the Capitol and then down the mall. And Marine One banked right at the Washington Monument. It's the most majestic route back to the White House from Andrews. There are several we usually take. That's the most beautiful. And as, there, as Marine One banked right, the Pentagon came clearly into sight and it was still smoldering smoke was still coming out and the president said to nobody in particular he just said it out loud the mightiest building in the world is on fire 
More from Ari Fleischer a bit later on. But now we want to introduce you to Cal Temple. He was in that mighty building on September 11th. Cal was the chief of the Defense Intelligence Agency Terrorism Indications and Warning Organization. Along with his team, he was working at the Pentagon that day, and he watched news of the attack on the Twin Towers on television. It appears that the, there is more and more fire and smoke enveloping the very top of the building. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. My job is to not be incapacitated by spectacle on TV. And I'm not undermining the loss of life or the tragedy that unfolded before millions of Americans. But I can't be flat-footed. Those Americans are expecting me to be in motion. I immediately knew it was an act of terrorism, immediately knew it was Osama bin Laden. The thing that struck me most clearly in that moment when I saw that was things have changed. Cal's instincts kicked into high gear. He began organizing the staff in support of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of Defense, and the United States Combatant Commands. I'm sitting with my colleague drawing up these plans, and the telephone on the desk rings. He answers the phone, he says, yes, I understand. He, he drops the phone and he said, that was the Federal Aviation Administration. He said they have uh, lost contact with two more aircraft. And it was probably not 10 minutes after that phone call when the entire Pentagon shook and we had realized one of the additional planes, we had been the targets. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. We're looking at a uh, live picture from Washington and there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. It would appear that there has been another major explosion. One of the four planes hijacked was American Airlines Flight 77. It flew into the southwest corner of the Pentagon there were 184 victims. The fatalities included 55 military personnel and 70 civilians. Seven of those were from the Defense Intelligence Agency. After the plane impacted the Pentagon, Cal checked on DIA personnel, secured classified information, and then directed everyone to their cars and led a convoy of 20 counterterrorism officers to DIA headquarters to, in his words, get to work. My mission at that time in the Defense Intelligence Agency's mission was the removal of al-Qaeda senior leadership and remove Taliban senior leadership in order to stabilize the country. So two, two primary levels of effort. Remove the people who had attacked our country and then suppress and remove the Taliban regime which had enabled them. Cal grew up in Nashville, Indiana. He came to Washington, D.C. in the late 1980s, wanting to serve in national security and service country. He spent several years in the National Guard and worked for the FBI from 1992 to 97 as an intelligence officer supporting bureau operations. In the fall of 97, he entered DIA and had a 19-year career with the agency. In 2021, he was inducted into the DIA Torchbearers Hall of Fame. It's the highest honor the agency can bestow on a former employee and recognizes individuals whose years of contributions have had an impact on the agency's successes and accomplishments. Sadly, three years earlier in 2018, Cal passed away. He left us way too soon. You've been listening to an interview he did with the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. 
As you can hear, it's easy to understand why we were blessed to have him as a teammate and why we miss him dearly. Here's more from that interview. I recall the Director of Intelligence for the Joint Staff, Admiral Jake Jacoby, had to go to a series of meetings with the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs rightfully asked the entire assembled military room, we're going to war. How do we win? How do we win this war? And that became an intelligence problem as much as it did an operational problem. And uh, we came up with strategies, ideas, concepts to assist the department in thinking about how do you win a war on terrorism. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. You've got to have an intelligence understanding of two things, places that sit in, on the ground and people who move around. And so we had to develop new intelligence architectures and understandings on locations in Afghanistan and elsewhere, and then the people who were circulating through the region and so on. We also had to figure out who needs this, who needs this. And by that I mean who has the fewest amount of resources now that needs me the most. Most relevant needs Defense Intelligence Agency now. And it came down to two answers. United States Special Forces and Defense Intelligence, Human Intelligence Collection. Those were my customers. And so when we were talking about targets, 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 I organized systems and architectures and product and intelligence that was tailored directly for them. That was my job, and that's what we did. In prayer for the people whose lives were lost here. Three days after the terrorist attacks, President Bush went to New York City and visited Ground Zero. He stood on top of an unearthed fire engine buried in rubble from the fallen buildings and dressed a crowd of weary but determined firemen and rescue workers. Here again is Ari Fleischer. The mood was anger. The country wanted justice. I mean, when President Bush on September 14th, in that megaphone moment, said that when he was speaking and, and, and one of the firemen, the policemen yelled back, we can't hear you. And he said, I mean, that was the most spontaneous, natural eruption of people cheering for America because they wanted justice. It's a frightful feeling to be part of a nation that you know is going to war. Because you know servicemen and women are going to die. But you knew that in this instance, using the strength of our military to bring justice and to go after al-Qaeda needed to be done. The U.S. strike has in fact begun that what we are seeing and hearing in Kabul are in fact uh, the sights and sounds coming from a U.S.-led attack on positions in and around Kabul. 
American-led military attacks against targets throughout Afghanistan continue tonight. Even as the, the Pentagon says U.S. and British forces struck 30 military targets in Afghanistan in the first day of the war. Operation Enduring Freedom, which began in October 2001, was the U.S. military response to the September 11th attacks. The purpose of the operation was to topple the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, capture or kill the planners of the attack, and eliminate terrorist camps in that country. Here's the defense secretary at that time, Donald Rumsfeld. The fact is, in this battle against terrorism, there is no silver bullet. There is no single thing that is going to, to suddenly make it that threat disappear. And here's then-chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Richard Myers. I want to remind you that while today's operations are visible, many other operations may not be so visible. Not so visible. Human. Human intelligence. That was the job of our next guest, and we're only going to use his first name, Mark. He was one of a large number of reservists mobilized after 9-11 by the Defense Intelligence Agency. He joined DIA historian Paul Isaacson for a conversation about his mission. But first, here he is describing his particular skill set, which made him a natural candidate to go to Afghanistan. I worked in the Navy's Anti-Terrorism Alert Center, which is under Navy Criminal Investigative Service. I had also worked at CIA looking at weapons of mass destruction and the terrorist use of WMDs. Proliferation, nuclear weapons, terrorism, those were all my my main skills. So I just figured when the time came after 9-11, one way, shape, or form, whether it was for CIA or back activated on active duty with DIA, that I would uh, that I would be over there. Well, thank you, Mark, for being with us today. I'm looking forward to hearing your stories. So let's uh, jump right in. Let's get to your mission. What were you doing there? What were you hoping to accomplish? Why were you so far forward in field, out there, tip of the spear? What were you trying to get done? My job and the the unit that I was attached to, that DIA had had uh, attached me to, uh, was largely there on a capture kill mission. And that was the first time I'd ever received orders that came directly from President Bush is that we were there to uh, to capture and kill Al-Qaeda and, and foreign fighters. And my job was to essentially be the bird dog, to flush the game, to go out and find out who was operating in our vicinity and then bring that information back uh, through working sources or interviewing, talking to people who, unlike us, had the ability to go across the Pakistan border. So developing relationships to, to get a sense of where the, the enemy were, what their capabilities were. How did you try, or did you, and if so, how did you try to assimilate into the Afghan culture? Tell us how you did that. We were understanding of their culture. We talked to them uh, as equals. We didn't talk down to them. We dressed like them. We understood them uh, to the best that we could. Business is going, going good? Many times I had more elderly Afghans talk to me and to the SEALs or the Green Berets that I was working with and say, we like you, we don't like the helmeted ones. We don't like, meaning they don't like the conventional army troops that were starting to then show up in Afghanistan because it reminded them so much of the Soviets. It wasn't that you were trying to fool anybody that you were an Afghan. 
but it was more like about respect? It, it was. It was. Not wearing sunglasses. When they would invite you, as we always were invited, to go in and have tea, uh, chai, when you went in, everybody took their shoes off, which meant we would take our boots off. That was a little bit concerning because if something were to happen and we needed to move fast, we would be at a disadvantage. But you had to weigh the cultural impact of going into someone's house or into their tent and keeping, keeping your shoes on or off. Mark's efforts in Afghanistan helped pave the way for the United States to get back to the way it was before. But it wasn't easy. Each day, it seemed as though there was another high-security alert. Letters sent through the mail with anthrax killed five people. Everyone was on edge, and the president recognized the need to return to normalcy. Once again, here's former White House press secretary to President Bush, Ari Fleischer. In the immediate aftermath of September 11th, everybody was glued to their TV. People had basically stopped working. No airplanes were flying. Stock market was closed. Commerce was essentially stopped. But President Bush recognized the American people need to resume their lives. And we wanted sports to resume because it would help America to get back on its feet and to adjust to post-September 11th life. And getting America back on its feet was an essential part of our recovery. Sports became more than just games. They were a safe haven where people could come together to cheer with each other and connect with each other without the worries of the outside world. And on one night in late October, baseball's grandiose event, the World Series, provided the backdrop to America's healing. It was nothing short of serendipity that one of the two teams playing in the Fall Classic would be the New York Yankees. That gave the president an opportunity for a demonstrative display of resiliency and to send a message to the world from the most iconic sports venue there is, Yankee Stadium. He recognized right away the signal that could be sent from an American president taking the mound in the Bronx and throwing out a first pitch. It's part of the symbolism. America's back. Look at our president. Helping to tell the story of what happens next, we turn to someone with a unique vantage point. I'm Jim Joyce, and I'm a retired Major League Baseball umpire. And I was working the World Series in 2001 when President George Bush threw out the first pitch for that World Series in New York. Jim Joyce had a 30-year career as an umpire. He told us that being selected to work a World Series is the highest honor for someone of his profession. But this time around, the real honor wasn't just about baseball. It was what he did prior to Game 3 when he went to Ground Zero. I wanted to see it. I wanted to see what had happened to New York and to the United States. I know that's going to sound, you know, blubbery, but that's really what I wanted to do. And I had my daughter. She was 14 at the time. I wanted her to see it. When we got there, it was still smoking. It was still smoldering of, you know, smoke. I literally started tearing up. It, It hit me really hard that something like that could be done, you know, to our country. The next night at Yankee Stadium, there were up to 1,800 law enforcement personnel. Fans went through metal detectors and snipers patrolled the roof. The uneasiness in the air was palpable, considering the comments made earlier in the day by Attorney General John Ashcroft. The administration has concluded, based on information developed, that there may be additional terrorist attacks 
within the United States and against United States interests over the next week. Secret Service agents were positioned all over the ballpark, including one in particular inside the umpire's locker room. He smiled and he was very he was very gracious. He was very polite. And after he introduced himself, he just sat back down. That's when the liaisons from the Secret Service came in to tell us that President Bush was going to come in. And then they said, and oh, by the way, Secret Service so-and-so here is going to walk onto the field with you and he's going to be dressed in an umpire uniform. And we said, okay. He had smoke grenades on the side. He had a shoulder-harnessed weapon. He had like a, a, a full holster wrapped around him on his upper body. And when he put our jersey on, the, the uniform jersey, it all disappeared. You would never know he had anything on him at all. A Secret Service agent masquerading as an umpire for a pregame appearance by the president wasn't the only unusual visitor to the umpire's locker room that night. President Bush came in. And I had with me, because I, I had a feeling this was going to happen, I took a still camera with me and I took a, a, a video recorder with me. And I recorded the whole thing. Will you do me a favor and say hi to my son because he's one of your biggest supporters? You. Jimmy? <laughs> Jimmy. Jimmy, how are you? This is my first World Series. Really? I've had, I never go to a World Series unless the Rangers got it. And I changed that now. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please direct your attention now to the area in front of the pitcher's mound for tonight's ceremonial first pitch. Ceremonial first pitches are almost always thrown from in front of the pitching mound, mostly because it's considered too difficult for a novice to throw the 60 feet 6 inches, that's the distance between the pitching rubber and home plate, with any degree of accuracy. Oftentimes, the attempts, shall we say, don't look very good at all. So the president planned on a nice, easy, safe throw from in front of the mound. That was the plan. But plans can change, especially when you get advice from Yankee great Derek Jeter. Here's Ari Fleischer. So he was warming up underneath the stands at Yankee Stadium and underneath the right field stands behind the dugout, and he's throwing from the base of the mound. And Derek Jeter walks by and he sees him and he sees him at the base of the mound. And Jeter said to the president, Mr. President, you're not going to throw from the base of the mound, are you? And Bush said, yeah, I thought I would. And Jeter goes, I want to do that if I were you. And the president said to Jeter, well, why not? And he said, this is Yankee Stadium. If you throw from the base of the mound, they're going to boo you. So now what's Bush going to do? So he said, all right, I'll throw from the rubber. So as Bush is about to take the field, the last thing he heard was Derek Jeter in his ear saying, Mr. President, don't forget, don't bounce it, they'll boo you. So Jeter had the president coming and going. And please welcome the President of the United States. And when he threw that perfect strike right down the middle with a little pop on the ball, it was the spontaneous cheering USA. USA, USA. And what a message to the world. He understood the gravity of that moment. And you know, in all the pictures of him afterwards, he had such a look of steely determination. There was no jubilation. There was no fist pump that he threw a perfect strike. His look matched the moment. 
No president has ever visited Yankee Stadium during the World Series. This was the year. That was a part of helping us get back on our feet. We were cheering for ourselves as a country after having gotten sucker punched. And it felt so good to hear people cheer for our country. Before we go, a final thought from our friend Cal Temple, who you heard from earlier. In 2011, Cal was the DIA Deputy Chief for Counterintelligence the day that bin Laden was killed. Here he is expressing his sentiments and reaction to that news. Felt as if justice had been served. It felt as if all the labor and the work was worth it. It felt as if the victims had received their dispensation. And it felt to me like it was the natural American conclusion to great events. We don't leave business unfinished. It was finished business and it was a deterrent. And that's not gonna stop the next terrorist um, from doing something. But by God, we don't leave business unfinished. In 2021, the Defense Intelligence Agency celebrates 60 years of commitment to excellence in defense of the nation. To learn more, check us out on social media or go to dia.mil. And please, don't forget to rate, review, and follow DIA Connections. Thanks for listening.